for many, the Christmas season uh, is one that's busy. I think just about everyone I ask, like, hey, thinking about Christmas, what is it like? I mean, the first word that comes to mind is, it's busy. There's a lot going on during this time, right? Our schedules are packed. We've got work parties and family parties and decorating the tree and decorating the house and putting up lights. Uh, You might even experience increased family drama during the holidays. Not in our family, but in other people's families out there, right? (laughs) Um, And of course, we have crowded shopping experiences. I try to do everything possible to avoid most of the retail places during this time. So instead of a reflective time, as we'd hope the Advent season would be the Christmas season, it's usually stressful. Some find it overwhelming and anxiety-inducing. Others face a degree of sadness during this time. There are many that this isn't a joyful time for them. Maybe they're strained family relationships. Maybe the Christmas season reminds you of the death of a loved one, a mom, a dad, a relative, a close friend. Maybe you have really traumatic childhood experiences around the holidays. So this is not a time for joy and a time for celebration. It's, it's one of sadness. It's maybe one of lament and hurt. I don't know how you feel about this particular time. You might already be exhausted you haven't even started just at the beginning of the month. We're about 24 days away from Christmas and then all of the post-Christmas things. And there's a lot of hype that's built up around the holidays. And sometimes we feel a little let down during the holidays. And on the other side of it, maybe that's when the sadness starts creeping in and maybe a little bit of low-grade, I don't know, depression. I know there's a few of the Christmas seasons that I've experienced in life that were not joyful. They were not celebratory. In fact, they were a little difficult um, to get through. There wasn't joy and happiness and all the things that we think come along uh, with it. They were just challenging moments, and it was hard to maintain a worshipful state through those things. The challenge is for us as believers, we know this season should be something a little bit different, right? It should be worshipful. It should be reflective. It should be celebratory. I mean, we are celebrating the birth of our Savior. What a glorious thing that is. So it shouldn't be one filled with sadness and anxiety and stress and and just busyness and a frenetic pace of life. This is a time where we would want to slow down a little bit and spend a little more time in reflecting. You know, as I was praying through and talking with Eric about what, what are we going to do for Advent and what's this series going to come about, there's a, a line from one of my favorite Christmas hymns, the 19th century Christmas hymn, O Holy Night. Right? We're all familiar with that, but there's a line in that, in that first verse that just kind of always grips me where he's talking about the condition of humanity, right? The, the humanity was, th- he was thinking about the night. The, the, in fact, the writer, what's fascinating about this hymn is the writer of this hymn was a Frenchman. He was like a wine connoisseur, a wine salesman in his community. And one of the parish priests, knowing that he liked to write poetry, asked him to write a poem for the Christmas Mass. They had just renovated their church organ, and they wanted to recognize that and, and asked him to write a song. Now, now, the writer of this hymn wasn't really an avid churchgoer. In fact, uh, he was a little hostile to the church, but he decided to do it and began to study Luke's gospel and, and came up with the beautiful words of this poem. Had a friend put it to music, and it was sung for Christmas Eve Mass that very year, just a few weeks later. But he writes in the opening verse, Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly... I wish I could sing it, but I can't. Right? And he writes, it is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. The thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. The weary world rejoices. Like There's hope. For the weary world, a world that was long under the curse of sin and error and darkness. 
And what was the birth of Christ like in, in his imagining, right? Like, like daybreak, like dawn, right? The first light of dawn and that long, weary night was passed and a new and glorious morning come. And then he says, now the weary world has cause to rejoice. And I love that because it's the gospel, isn't it? It's the story of the gospel. Now, he didn't get it. And sadly, I don't think there was any thing that I've ever read that he actually even believed the words he was writing. Didn't even grip his heart. But he wrote such beautiful words, and God has used that. And here we are today still singing that glorious hymn. And you might be wondering why we call this the Advent season or why we celebrate these four Sundays preceding Christmas and considering the fifth Sunday would be Christmas Day, why we observe that time. I mean, I don't really read anything in Scripture that that's what we're supposed to do. And it's not. It's not something prescriptive. It's not something we're commanded to do. But from the very early history of the church, this time of the year was kind of singled out or marked out as a time for God's people to reflect on the birth of our Lord, the incarnation. The word Advent comes from the Latin word for coming or arrival. So we, we refer to it as the Advent of Christ, the coming of Christ to earth. And what we do during this time is identify with the people of God throughout history who are waiting on the promise of Christ. They're waiting on the promise of the Messiah. And we're going to talk about that uh, shortly here in today's message. They were waiting for him. So it's a time for us to put ourselves in their place, right, to identify with them. Uh, But also it's a time where we reorient ourselves with this familiar story. It is not one that we should ever look at and go, you know, eh, it's the Christmas story. It's just about the birth of our Lord. No, it's something so profound, so supernatural, so amazing, and so life-changing. But we're not just identifying with the people of God who waited. We're also in a period of waiting ourselves, aren't we? What are we waiting for? We're waiting for his second advent, our Lord is coming again, right? So Advent is a really big deal for us. It's important, and we don't need to, there's nothing about the Advent, right? There's nothing miraculous or special about that. These are just all symbols, things to help us reorient ourselves and focus our minds and hearts uh, during this time. And one of the reasons I believe we need it is, is a lot because of the times that we find ourselves in. In fact, our, our modern times have really, I'm just going to say, bastardized the Christmas holiday. It has lost its meaning. It has lost the grandeur that it should have in the hearts of God's people, right? It should be a time of celebration, but it's just one of consumerism. It's a time of consumption. It's not one of reflection, but distraction and busyness and disruptions. So we're going to slow down a little bit. And we're going to talk about things we talk about all the time because they are essential and important to us, right? We want to rehearse the promises of God. We want to rehearse the gospel story, the incarnation of our Lord. And we want to renew and refresh our weary souls as we patiently wait with endurance on our Lord's glorious return. So it's a time for us to live with worshipful reflection, but also with Hopeful anticipation, right? Reflecting on what was and hopefully anticipating what is yet to be, all right? So we're going to talk about the reasons why the world is weary. Why are we in this weary state, to use that line, but also look at the promises of God, the hope of God's promises and what he said he would do for the weary world and how that hope is found in Christ as the fulfillment of those things. And lastly, we will look at how that hope in Christ uh, encourages us in our weariness. So why is the world weary in the first place? What is that all about? When we think back to creation, we think about the count in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. What do we find there telling us about how God made this world? He made it, and he created all things, and he said, it's good. There's absolutely nothing wrong with God's creation. 
In fact, we find God placing man and woman in the garden, the perfect paradise. Nothing was wrong. All was good. Nothing that they ate made them fat. There was no depression. There was no anxiety. There was no exhaustion. It was all good. It was beautiful. They were running around with their clothes, and there was no body shaming. Right? It was awesome. There was no sin. There was no death. But what we know is that man's rebellion, right, perverted all that, distorted all that, stained all of that, marred it, tainted it with sin, believing the the lie of the enemy that they could be something more than what God had made them to be. And what he made them to be was good and perfect and, and right. But their rebellion ruined it all. And in their sin and in their rebellion, a thick cloud of gloom shrouded God's good world. And what we find in Genesis chapter 3 now is as God calls them to account and they present themselves before God and, and God curses the serpent, if you recall that. And, and, and he declares war, that there would be war between the seed of the serpent, our enemy, and the seed of the woman. It would be all out war from that moment forward. Nothing would be right again. Nothing would be Good, like the perfection that they had experienced in the garden. And the Lord even announces that the woman would have a tough go at fulfilling her role in creation to multiply image bearers. Now, God doesn't curse man and the woman. He curses the serpent. He curses the ground. But, but he says, hey, things are going to be really hard for you. Things are going to be really tough. There is now pain that you're going to experience uh, in childbirth. What should have been easy for man and woman, man working the ground and producing from the ground, would now be extremely, extraordinarily difficult. Pain would be part of man's world from this point forward. Blood, sweat, and tears would now be part of life in this cursed earth. Work would become wearisome. Now, if you're like, man, I hate work. Work is difficult. Why do we have to work? Well, there's why. It's not that work is bad. It's that work now is hard. We don't just produce. We don't function like we should have. There's not the return that we would have gotten in the perfection of what God had made from the beginning. But that wasn't even the worst of it. The worst part of it was that Man's connection with his creator was broken, was severed. Man would no longer enjoy and woman would no longer enjoy the sweet fellowship they had with God in the perfection of his world. And now we have a new reality that enters creation that was never there before, death. Death. Everything would succumb and be subject to death. Sin ruined everything, and it would truly be a weary world. In fact, the teacher in Ecclesiastes says that everything, all things are full of weariness. Not some things, all things. Think about that in your own life. I mean, we know this to be experientially true for us, but all things are full of wearisomeness. Our relationships, are those easy? Even your best of relationships. Your marriage is wearying, isn't it? Your relationship with your kids is wearisome. With co-workers, with friends, your work is hard. You toil and you sweat and you labor and you can't seem to produce what you think you should be producing. You save and invest and you don't have the kind of return That you want, you study hard and you educate yourself and you don't seem to get to the place where you want to be. You eat healthy and exercise and you're like into fitness and your body still may give out on you. Physical strength and health is fleeting. 
Emotionally, we are drained. We are exhausted. And here's what God's word says to be true. Spiritually, we are dead. There is no spiritual life in us. That is the human condition. That is our weary world. Paul, the apostle of the Lord, writes in Romans chapter 8 that all of creation, every part of it was subject to futility, was frustrated, was subjected to corruption and decay and is in bondage to corruption and decay. And he writes that all of creation has been groaning under the weight of our rebellion from the fall forward. That is the hopeless and helpless condition of the weary world that we are in. Don't you feel that? Don't you feel that? That this world is not how God intended for it to be. It doesn't function as he intended for it to function. And we all feel the effects of that. I mean, we sang it in that song, in that call and response song, right? Is he worthy? Do you feel the world is broken? Yeah, duh. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We most certainly do. That's the weary world. It's broken. It's sick. It's in darkness. And everything is veiled in gloom and despair. You sense it in the relationships around you. You know it to be true as you put your hands to the plow, metaphorically, because I don't think any of us actually plow, working behind our keyboards or doing whatever it is that we do. It just doesn't come easy. Nothing in this life comes easy. I experienced that yesterday when I went to repair something that broke down in one of the tenants' places that I manage. I had to replace a shower Fixture, and I was trying to remove the cartridge, and the thing cracked on me. Yes, yeah, some of you have done that before, know what it is to remove one of those, and then the work that's involved, and what should have been a five minute job turned into an hour plus job, and I was sweating. <laughs> it was blood, sweat, and tears. We feel that all around us, we experience that all. Around us Now, if that was the end of the story, if that's all there was to this narrative of the human condition and life in this weary world, then it would be utterly hopeless, would it not be? But the Advent season reminds us that there is hope and that it is all about hope because God wove hope into the grand tapestry of the story of redemption, his story of redemption. Hope is the thread that runs all through of it. So it's not completely as hopeless as we think that it might be. The creator from all eternity purposed to do something about our hopelessness. Something about our helplessness. Something about our wearisome condition. So right there from the beginning of the story, as as the thick flog of despair and gloom and doom was beginning to roll in over his creation and cover the earth, the seed of hope was planted. We see it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God says, I will put enmity. As he curses the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, right? That's the battle declaration, right? And between your offspring and her offspring. And he, the offspring of the woman, the promised deliverer, he shall bruise your head. He will, he will deliver the crushing blow, but you'll only bruise his heel. And though the ground was cursed, though man would have to leave the garden paradise, though the creator-creature relationship would no longer be the same, and life would be hard, and there will be pain, there was a glimmer of hope, wasn't there? It's a glimmer of hope. Through the seed of the woman, God would bring a deliverer. Now that promise of hope in various degrees and forms is scattered throughout the Old Testament. 
throughout the history of the people of God, we see this promise of hope reiterated time and time again in seed form, in kernel form, in types and shadows and symbols, but it's the promise of hope. In fact, even after the devastation of the flood and all that that happened there, there's hope because what does God do? He delivers his righteous ones so that the seed would propagate and this promise would come to fruition. We see the promise of hope renewed in the covenant God makes with the patriarch Abraham. The deliverer would come from his loins, from his lineage. All of the families of the earth would be blessed by his descendant, the promised deliverer. We see the promise of hope in God's rescue of his people out of bondage in Egypt. That whole story about the people of God is a type and shadow of the kind of rescue that that God would, would do in rescuing us from sin, in our bondage to sin and death, and how God would secure that for us. We see the promise of hope in the covenant God makes with David, Israel's great king. He promises that the Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer, would be his heir, his descendant. And then he writes that his descendant would have a kingdom that would be established forever. That's the promise of hope that God makes. And all through the voice of his prophets, God heralded the promise of hope through the Messiah. There are hundreds of messianic prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah, about the hope of the people of God and what God would do. And all of those prophecies could kind of be summed up into two categories. God's promised deliverer would rescue and deliver his people from their sins. How glorious is that? Be restored to fellowship with God. But God would also, through Messiah, vanquish all of his enemies. They would all be defeated, and then his kingdom would be established forever and ever and ever, and all of God's people would be brought into that glorious kingdom. That's the promise of hope. So from Genesis 3 forward, the people of God have been anticipating the coming of the Messiah, been waiting, longing for it. If you read the Old Testament, you know the history of the people of God. There were some troubling things there. There was a lot of gloom and darkness. There was a lot of difficulty and pain and hardship. hardship. There was a lot of of continued and ongoing rebellion and unfaithfulness in the people of God. And yet the promise of this hope of the Messiah continued to march forward throughout human history. We have Isaiah, the prophet of the Lord, prophesy about 750 years before the fulfillment of the promise in, in, in a well-known passage, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 and verse 6 and 7, where he declares to the people of God, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts What a glorious promise of hope to the people of God. You better believe this was an incredible word of hope to them. Why? Because they were living in a time of deep darkness. They were in the midst of deep hopelessness and great despair at the very moment that this prophecy was being uttered from the lips of Isaiah by the Spirit of the Lord. Deep darkness, deep sin, deep idolatry, deep rebellion. Those who were faithful to God felt like maybe God had abandoned them, that God had forgotten his promises, that he had forgotten his people. A whole string of succession of of evil and wicked kings were leading Israel. 
And these kings were leading God's people into rebellion and idolatry and worship of false gods. Corruption. I mean, just immorality, depravity was ruling during that time. The nation was in shambles. And they felt from the north like their enemies breathing down their necks. It would just be a matter of time before Israel truly would lie in destruction and ruin. And if you read Isaiah and you read the prophets prophesying during that time, you would, you would feel like they were writing it to us today. I mean, that, it feels like the time we're in now. Idolatry and rebellion and depravity and, and wicked leaders and corruption and things going from bad to worse and, a, and an increasingly hostile culture. So Isaiah's pronouncement is that even in the midst of their darkness and brokenness and sin, rampant corruption and rebellion, a light was coming. A light was coming. There was hope. And it's the hope of the light that comes before dawn. That's what's in view here. Before you see the sun peak over the the horizon, what do you see out there? You'll see like a glow, right? You see a glow emerge. You see the light before you see the source of the light. And this is what Isaiah is beginning, beginning to, to indicate through this particular prophecy. What God had promised long ago, many, many, many centuries before, it's coming. The light's almost in the horizon there. God had not forgotten them. God had not forgotten his promises to them. God had not forgotten the covenant he had made with his people. God was faithful even though they were continually unfaithful to him. All of that darkness that tried to smother all hope from the people of God would be rolling off of them. Isaiah's word would have been like a booster shot of hope to the people of God. Now, even though that word came to them, they would have to wait a whole lot longer. Many, many more centuries went by for the arrival of that promise. When you think from that initial seed in Genesis chapter 3 to the fulfillment at the coming of Christ in his incarnation and birth, thousands and thousands of years had passed. That's a whole lot of waiting. That's a whole lot of anticipating. I mean, I can't even wait the day that Amazon Prime promises me to see that guy show up at my door and my little doorbell cam go, bing, and, you know, it's here. Could you imagine the, the waiting of the people of God? Hearing the promise in all of its forms over and over and over again, and yet darkness, a weary world, a life Extremely hard under the cursed earth. Now, Luke's gospel gives us a short bio of of two people uh, who had been waiting. And in their waiting, actually got to behold with their very eyes the fulfillment of God's promise of hope through Messiah. These were two individuals who were at the temple, prayerfully waiting and worshiping when the baby Jesus was presented. We had the story of Simeon in Luke chapter 2, 25 through 32. But look at all of these, these things that Luke writes about what he had been waiting for. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem, verse 25 through 32, whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. And we don't know exactly how it was revealed to him, but it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. That's the Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Look at this. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. 
Isaiah 9 and all of the prophecies uh, of the prophets of old. Now Simeon was saying, my eyes are seeing the salvation that you had promised your people. I get to behold it. I get to see him. And it's salvation. Look, your salvation, but it's not just for the Jews. It would be for all the all peoples, all the Gentiles who would place their trust in the Messiah, in God's salvation through him, through his Christ. How amazing must that have been? What God's people have been waiting for and longing for and yearning for and anticipating and expecting for thousands of years. Here's Simeon, just another day in the temple, worshiping and waiting. And the Spirit reveals to him, there he is. There he is. And then following that, we have Anna in Luke chapter 2, 36 to 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years. So she wasn't a young one. Well, she's only 84, so she's young. Yeah. Having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. So she was a widow for a long time. Many, many decades. But look what we find about her. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She wasn't passively waiting, was she? This wasn't no passive expectation. Well, maybe, maybe not. No, she, she was actively there waiting, praying and worshiping. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him. Look, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. How awesome is that? How awesome is that? And the time that they were living in? Well, it was a time of relative peace. But why? They were under Roman rule. This wasn't the Israel of the Old Testament. This wasn't the people of God gathered in the land that God had given them under the rulership of kings who served the Lord. No, they were, they were under Roman occupation. Under the Roman Empire. They weren't really free. It was a time of darkness for them. But they were waiting on the promise and they got to see it. They got to be eyewitnesses of the fulfillment of God's promise of hope. Had they not been waiting, had they not been expecting, had they doubted those promises, they would have missed the blessing of seeing the fulfillment. So we need hope. If God's people didn't need hope, there would be no promise of hope. God would just do what he had to do one day. But hope is essential. Hope is necessary. Without the promise of hope... All the way back in the garden and the renewed promises of hope throughout history, God's people would have lived in utter despair. They would have been crushed by the darkness. They would not have endured, those who would remain faithful to the Lord would not have endured under the the hardships and the suffering and the pain that they find themselves in at that time. Now, you and I know a thing or two about hope because we place our hope in a lot of things, don't we? Lots of different things. We place our hope in people and things. And sadly, many of those things and people end up letting us down, don't they? Some of you may have placed hope in a spouse only to have your spouse let you down. Or in a close relationship and that person betray you and let you down. Maybe you place your hope in a job. This is the one that's going to help me to advance and realize all of my dreams in the future only to be let down. We have many examples of misplaced hope in our life. We all do it. We've all done it. There may be something right now you have misplaced your hope in. Some of you might be placing your hope in a political figure or party. You're going to be let down. You might be placing your hope in your investments and, you know, I'm saving for the future. You're going to be let down. No more time are we let down than we are during Christmas because of maybe what we're hoping to get. You might remember some, maybe have some memories of your childhood where you've been let down, right? 
I remember, and if you're a little bit older, I don't, I don't know that this is true necessarily nowadays, but I remember that fat Toys R Us catalog coming to the house. And as a little child, just flipping those pages and just, right? Oh, I want that. I want that. What would you do? You'd circle it. You'd highlight it, man. You'd put stars, man. And, and at every moment that you could show your parents that thing, you'd be showing. You'd rip that page out and say, this is what I want Santa to bring me. This is what I'm hoping to be under the tree on Christmas morning when I unwrap that present, right? Anyone ever do that? How do kids do that nowadays? Do they share a link from Amazon with their parents or something? Here's what I want. Here's what I want Santa to bring me. I, I don't know how it's. My child's a little bit older now, so I don't know how that is. That happens there. But we all, we all have done things like that, right? Every time the toy commercial would come up, right, and play on the TV, we'd be like, yeah, we'd be talking it up to our parents, right, hoping that would be the thing that we'd get. And when we saw those gift wrap presents on Christmas morning, right, our hope, like, elevated to a fever pitch because we're like, That's, it's going to be there. It's going to be there. I think of poor Ralphie in the movie Christmas Story. Every time when I think about longing for something to receive at Christmas, you know. Now, he does get what he longs for, but I love the lead up to all, all of that, right? I mean, he is drooling over that BB gun he sees in the department store window. And every opportunity he gets, he's talking about that BB gun. He's telling everybody about that BB gun, right? Because he wants his parents to get him that BB gun. He wants to unwrap that on Christmas morning and, and have the realization of everything he has hoped for, the thing that would actually make his life complete. Unfortunately, everyone that he tells in his life about this BB gun tells him that he's going to shoot his eye out. <laughs> They're trying to dissuade him, right, from getting the very thing that he wants. But on Christmas morning, right, he sees all of those presents, and he is sure that that is there. But it's not, is it? He opens everything, and he's discouraged. He's disappointed because that BB gun is not in those gifts under the tree. Now, spoiler alert if you haven't seen that movie. I know some of you have probably seen it 500 times already. But, but his father does get him the BB gun. But, but in the moment that he's opening everything and he realizes what he wanted is not there, right? He is he's disappointed. Right, and, and he's deflated because what he had hoped for wasn't there. And you and I have hoped for things only to not ever see them realized. As a little kid, you'd go down and unwrap the presents hoping to see the thing, and the thing is not there, just more socks and underwear and other things like that. We're disappointed. We have misplaced hope. And the kind of hope that we place in people and things will always disappoint us. They'll always let us down. And sometimes when we read of the promises of, that God makes in his word, we kind of treat them the same way we think about the things that we place our hope in, that we're not sure if they'll be realized. And, and there's still a lingering feeling that we will be let down, even though it's what we want and we feel like it's what we need. The thing with the promises of hope in Scripture is that they're not anything like that, right? The promises of Scripture are unfailing. They're unfailing promises, especially concerning this promise of hope. And it's unfailing because all of the promises of God that He makes concerning how He's going to save His people and rescue His people from the weary world, all of them have and will come to pass, every single one of them. So we can actually have true and lasting hope because God is faithful to do everything he said he will do. A lot of things are going to let us down out there, but he does not. I'm going to look at two passages in Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews is um, it's a challenging book to work through. If you've read through Hebrews, there's a lot of head-scratching. There's a lot of Old Testament imagery and symbolism and aspects of the Old Testament sacrifice system, and we won't have time to actually work through that here. But I want you to see two passages here concerning 
the hope that we have and what that hope is actually grounded upon. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, right, the promise that he made that he's going to bless him, that the, the, the deliverer is going to come as his descendant, that, you know, he says, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now, but look what it says here. This is important, and I'm going to touch on it in a moment. He makes a promise to Abraham, and since he had no one greater by whom to swear, what does he do? He swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Now that's like a 10-week sermon series right there. We don't have that. So, But there's a few things I want to highlight here. Notice how the writer of the Hebrews says here, it is impossible for God to lie. Think about that for a moment. It's surely not impossible for us to lie. Surely it's not impossible for others not to lie. But he's saying here it's impossible for God to lie. He cannot lie. There is absolutely nothing in God's being, essence, nature, if you will, that would contain a shred or morsel of a lie, of an untruth. He is truth. It is the very essence of his being. That means that anything that comes from the mouth of God cannot be a lie. It is truth. What he says is. What he says will be, will be. What he says will come to pass, will come to pass. Because he cannot lie. It's impossible for him to lie. So he makes this promise to Abraham about his descendants and the land he's going to give them. He promises that through his seed, all the peoples of the world, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Read Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 15 and 17 where God makes this promise and the covenant he makes with Abraham concerning what he says. So if it's impossible for God to lie, it was enough for him to just say that to Abraham. Make that promise to Abraham. It would come to pass. It just is. What God speaks is infallible. But look what God chooses to do. It's just mind-blowing to me. He swears an oath. Does he need to swear an oath? No. Now, we swear oaths. We make promises. I swear. And we easily break our oaths. But oaths, covenants, pacts made during that particular time were a big deal. For two people to come together and make a covenant like you broke that covenant at the penalty of death or some serious consequence. It was no light thing or, or small thing to enter into a covenant. But that God chose to reinforce his word of promise to Abraham by swearing an oath that he would fulfill his promise is remarkable. Absolutely astounding. It is the greatest pinky swear in all of history. For God to swear an oath that he did not need to make. Okay? So it's what he says here, right? Like, who would God swear an oath by? I will swear an oath. I swear on my mother's life. Or whatever we might say. I swear, if I don't fulfill this, I will do X. And we just kind of break that. 
Like, who could God swear by that is greater than him? There's nothing. There's no one greater than God. He is the king of glory, the king of the universe, the creator of all things. Who's he going to swear by? He swears by himself. He swears by himself. Abraham, I will bless you and multiply you. I swear my very being on it coming to pass. Oh, and the imagery of the pact and the covenant that God makes there where an animal is taken and it's cut in half. And there's the symbol of the torch, right, the, of the glory of God, the very presence of God that passes in between them. It's, it's, it's a ritual that was performed at that time. And in essence, it's saying, if I don't fulfill what I say I'm going to do, so be it done unto me to be cut in half. And God is saying to Abraham, see, it's going to happen. Now, it's enough for me to say it, but let me demonstrate it to you by making a covenant and swearing an oath by my very self that what I say will happen is going to happen. God is supremely confident in himself and in his ability to bring about whatsoever he purposes, pleases, and declares. Are you as confident in God as he is in himself? We should be. Because it's impossible for him to lie. Then the writer of Hebrews uses the surety of the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. The unchangeable purpose of God in that promise. And the impossibility of God lying as encouragement for us. Encouragement for us to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Think about what he's saying here. Hey, see how God fulfilled what he promised to Abraham? See how nothing can change God's determined purpose to bless Abraham? See how it is impossible for God to lie about anything? So hold fast. Hold fast to the hope set before us. It is a completely logical argument. And it should be completely logical to the people of God that God would do exactly what he promised to do. Oh, But if logic were all that it was, right? It's not. What is the hope set before us? Well, we know that hope was manifested at the birth of Christ, right? That his incarnation is the fulfillment of the promise of hope. And through the appearance of Christ, through the work of what the writer of Hebrews here calls the greater and eternal high priest, he has become the source of eternal salvation. You can read that in Hebrews chapter 5. Through his once and for all time sacrifice, our sins are completely dealt with. Are completely blotted out. We are forgiven. And so he writes that now the people of God can actually enter into the eternal rest promised to them in Christ Jesus. And he goes on in in Hebrews there to say that we are being sanctified through our great high priest. And we can have confidence also to draw near the throne of grace, the presence of God to obtain mercy and find grace in our time of need. In Christ, the veil of darkness that covered our heart, that shrouded us in utter despair and helplessness and hopelessness has been lifted. And now we can see the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. What were we like? We were like a ship adrift at sea. Tossed to and fro and tossed about by every wind and wave. But he says now we have this hope, what? As a steadfast, a steady anchor for our souls. You and I are securely anchored in Christ Jesus. He says a hope that goes to the inner place. Behind the veil, behind the curtain. And God, this is imagery of the tabernacle. The holy of holies, the most holy place that was behind the curtain. No one could enter there. It's where the ark was, the the visible manifestation of the glory of God. It was the place where where God would meet his people and and a pillar of fire would come down over the ark. It was the place that only one time a year the high priest could enter to make atonement for his sins and the sins of the people and and animals would be sacrificed and blood would be brought in and he would sprinkle the mercy seat that sat atop of the ark. The ark that contained the broken law of God. 
The people of God had trespassed that law through their rebellion, through their unfaithfulness and sin. And God is saying, I'm going to make a way for you to be able to meet with me. I'm going to make a way for you not to be utterly destroyed, rightfully so, because of your sin. The high priest would enter in and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Why? It's just another thing that tells us that all sin has a penalty, has a consequence. A death has to occur. Blood must be shed. So this imagery was a type and shadow of Christ and what he was going to do. He is the tabernacle, right? He is the holy temple of God. Of what those things were a type and shadow of. So all of this here, and it's just so much. Read Hebrews and you'll get the bigger picture of what the writer here is trying to convey with this language. But it helps us to see what all of those things represented. What they were about. But none of those things there could actually take care of sin. Could actually clean, cleanse the conscience of, the hum, of human being. Actually blot out their sins before God. They were temporary. It was a cleansing of the flesh, but it wasn't a cleansing of the heart. So this is what he's saying here. Our hope is in the one of whom the inner place of the tabernacle was a type and shadow of. Right? Christ is the heavenly tabernacle. And through his perfect life, he was able to enter in. He went before us in his humanity living out the perfect life before us and going to the cross, shedding His blood for us to make atonement for our sins. And because He was the forerunner going before us, guess what? You and I can follow Him right after Him. We can also enter in. So He goes on in Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 23. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, there's no other way to enter. There's no other way to have the presence of God, be in the presence of God, experience the fullness of God, experience the hope that God has promised here, except by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us, look, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. We can have confidence because of Christ. You see that there. That's what true biblical hope is. It's not wishful thinking. It's not a hoping with the possibility of being let down and maybe it not happening. All of this is grounded in the great priestly work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. In in His sacrifice for us in our place, in the shedding of His blood, we actually have true, real forgiveness of sins, true cleansing and righteousness. We have the presence of God. We can call Him our Father. We can know that He truly is Emmanuel, God with us. We have hope. Real hope. The things we hope for in Christ are a certainty. They are assured. Now we don't live our life all the time this way. And, and the way we are, especially during this season, and how we get wrapped up and caught up in everything, and how we feel anxious and, and, and stressed out and overwhelmed, and all of the things that come with this, testify to the fact that we don't really believe this this way. That we're not holding fast to the confession of our hope that is set before us, and what Christ has done on our behalf. Hope arrived as a baby. Not in any way you and I would script, right? The way God would wage war against the serpent was with a baby who does that. 
Like there's war right now, right? Imagine saying, what we're going to do is we're going to send the babies out. That's how we're winning. Well, maybe people are like, I'm not going to kill a baby. But we know that, unfortunately, is not the truth. God sends a baby. In his declaration of war against the serpent, he was already cueing humanity in that how he was going to do this, that promise of hope is not going to look like the things that you and I place our hope in every single day, the things that let us down. What God would do in the fulfillment of his promise of hope would be only something that he could accomplish. And through Christ, we have access to everything that separated us from God. And through Christ, everything has been reconciled so that you and I could draw near to him with full assurance of faith. And we could have then the ability to hold fast the confession of our hope here. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. He who started our salvation will be faithful to bring it to completion. Notice how we are encouraged to hold fast to our confession of hope. Now, normally we talk about our confession of faith, but he's saying here the confession of our hope. He's saying don't waver. Don't waffle in your confession of the hope you have in Christ because God is faithful. Not you. You're not going to be faithful. You haven't been. You're not going to be. And not anyone else in this world is going to be faithful. But God is faithful. And our hope in Christ cannot be taken from us. There are going to be things that try to steal and rob that hope from us. But in Christ, it is assured. And so the writer of Hebrews, and we don't have time to go through this, read chapter 11, right? We call that the hall of faith. But what do you find there? This remarkable list of of Bible characters who believe the promise of hope, who believe the promises of God and patiently waited for it and endured suffering and mockery and ridicule. And many of them didn't even see with their own eyes the fulfillment of that promise. But what did they do? They trusted in the faithfulness of God. They trusted in the impossibility of God to lie. They trusted that God would do what he said he would do, even if they would never see it in their lifetime. Now that's hope. That's true biblical hope. Now I quoted Romans 8 earlier, and we're wrapping up here, about creation being subjected to futility and being in bondage to corruption after the fall. Look what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, 22 and 20 through 25. <clears throat> For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation's groaning. Creation's under the weight of the corruption of this world, the darkness, sin, and death. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly. See that language of waiting again, right? What are we waiting for? Adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. How he says it, for in this hope, we were saved. What, what's the, what hope is that? Well, it's the hope of receiving everything that has been promised to in our salvation. So he mentions adoption as sons, the redemptions of our body. What is that? That's shorthand, right, for us getting everything that's been promised to us at the return of our Lord. At his second advent, that's what we're waiting for. Those are just some of those elements, but, but we're waiting for that. We're hoping for those things to come to pass. And we can have confidence that they will. They will. All things will be made new. Everything that has destroyed this world will not be part of the new. You read Revelation 21 and uh, and 22, those two chapters, right? It's John's vision of the new heaven and the new earth. What he sees there is glorious. 
And everything that we find in this cursed earth right now, everything that has troubled us, everything that has wearied us, every bit of difficulty and pain and hardship and suffering and sickness and death, everything that causes us to lament and be sorrowful and weep and cry about and mourn will not be in the new. It won't be there. And he's saying that's where our hope is. We are anchored in Christ Jesus such so that 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 has been promised to us is as good as done. It's as good as ours. And though we groan inwardly now because we are still subject to the effects of all that this cursed earth is under. That's where our hope is. That's what's ours, all things being made new. We will be with God and He will be with us. What John sees is just the presence of God in the midst of His people. Him dwelling. No need for sun. Why? Because the glory of God will be the light. We will live forever in the unrestrained glory and presence of God. Everything that wearies us now will not be there. So where is your hope placed today? Where is your hope placed? I hope it's in Christ. Because if it is in Christ, then your hope is anchored in unshakable ground. Your hope is anchored in a sure promise. It will come to pass. But if your hope is not in Christ, if your hope is in material possessions and people and stuff, a relationship, you place hope in yourself. That ain't a smart thing to do. All of those things will fail you. All of them. Those are not sure and steady anchors for our souls. They're not meant to be. Trusting any of those things will leave us frustrated and angry and anxious and sad and weary. Where is your hope placed? As we continue to reflect on this Advent season here, and identify with the waiting of God's people throughout history, we're reminded that whatever darkness tries to rob us of that hope and steal that hope from us or threaten that hope that we have in Christ, we have to remember that God is faithful. We're not placing our hope in shaky ground when we place it in Him. No matter what hand life deals us, Our hope and confidence is rooted in the unshakable promises of God in Christ Jesus, a faithful God. You and I can go all in, all in, in what God has told us to place our hope in. Because it's not a gamble. It's not a risk. A lot of things that are risky in life. It's a lot of things we invest in, like we hope they will yield the return that we're hoping for. That's a gamble. That's a risk. None of it is a gamble and risk when your hope is grounded and rooted in Christ Jesus. In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Paul writes, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We might have hope. Where do we find that hope? In Scripture. The promises of God contained in Scripture. That's why we we want to rehearse the gospel story. That's why we want to immerse ourselves in the story of Christ's first advent, which was the fulfillment of hope. It's why we want to stir ourselves up with God's word by contemplating what will be the, the realization of that hope at his second advent. Immerse yourself in that over this season. Don't get caught up the way the world does in fleeting and foolishness that happens during this time. It's not about shopping. It's not about decorations. Those things are great. Give gifts. I will happily receive them. And you will as well. It's not about that. It's about the promise of hope. It's about the promise of hope. And the hope that we 
are patiently waiting to see with our very eyes his second advent. So endure. That's the second component of that. Through endurance. Right? You, you've, you've got to trust that God will come through because he said he would. And we're going to walk through moments of darkness and disappointments and difficulties. But none of those things are to rob us of our hope. Because he is faithful. He is faithful. So I don't know what you might need to help you. Reflect and focus and reorient yourself during this time. I encourage you to use an Advent devotional. There's the one I narrated um, that's on Scent.life. You can listen to that over uh, the time up here leading up to Christmas Day. Some of you might have Advent devotionals on your library shelf at home. Pull it out. But I encourage you, go through the gospel stories here about Christ's first Advent. Rejoice, marvel, worship as you reflect on that. And then, then really, really look at the promises of God concerning what is to be, what is not yet. Those are ours and they're glorious. I close with Paul's benediction there in Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope, he's the God of hope, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.